Well, now this evening we come to the last evening on this particular matter, the authority, the Bible, its authority, its revelation and its inspiration. And uh, you will remember that last week we dealt with the matter of revelation and inspiration. So this evening we're going to take up more or less where we left off last week and go on to, I trust, the completion of this study on the whole matter of divine inspiration. I think, however, although I'm not going to say anything about the revelation uh, that is in the Bible, I ought just very simply to um, remind you of what we said about inspiration. You will remember that the Oxford Dictionary says that the meaning of inspiration or to inspire is firstly to inhale, to breathe in, or then to infuse thoughts or feelings into another. This is not at all the biblical idea of inspiration. When God's word uses uh, the word inspired has an altogether different meaning. It does not mean that God is playing on the artistic or literary or so-called spiritual abilities of certain men, giving them ideas, influencing them perhaps to write certain things or to say certain things. The idea is a compound word and the idea in 2 Timothy 3.16, every scripture inspired of God, the is every scripture God-inspired. And the idea is more of something being breathed out rather than breathed in. And you will remember that last week we looked at a number of scriptures and we underlined the little preposition in. God had spoken before time to the fathers in the prophets. And again, the Holy Spirit, which was the Spirit of Christ, which was in them did uh, point unto when it predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. And then again, we um, looked at the uh, other uh, scripture where it speaks of, the, of men of God um, being born along, being moved by the Holy Spirit. And the idea all through of inspiration, of divine inspiration, is that God by the Holy Spirit was within these men and was actually giving expression within them to his own heart and mind. He was breathing out scripture through them. And you will remember too that we notice that this term inspiration covers not just what was said, not just the spoken or preached word, but the written word. For it is the most interesting thing that this word in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, from verse 14 to 16, the word used is sacred writings and then all scripture inspired of God. Not just every word of God inspired of him. Or not just uh, every saying, no, but every scripture, that is the actual written word. For the word uses a technical word for the written word. N not only covering the 
oral transmission of God's word, but the written form of God's word. So this, this word inspiration covers every stage in the construction of the Bible. From it actually being given, as it were, orally in some cases, right down to its being, being transmitted into its written form. God was in those who spoke and wrote. Now that is very important. And therefore we can say straight away that the Bible has been produced by God through the Holy Spirit in certain men. Now that's really a very, very brief survey of what we said last week. I ought perhaps just to say that the, I, the biblical idea of inspiration is not one of mechanical dictation, a kind of uh, the, the, the human vessel was an automatic machine and God more or less dictated what he had to say, and they followed word for word. The Gentile view of inspiration, common in the days of the Lord Jesus, and indeed all the way through the compilation of Scripture, was a, of a possession by a spirit, possession by a spirit with the complete suspension of human will and thought. In other words, you still see it today in spiritism, and in other, some other of the religions of the world, where there is still a view and an experience of inspiration, not divine, which is the complete suspension of the um, human mind and human will, so that they become, as it were, just a machine through which something else writes or speaks. This is not the biblical idea of inspiration at all. And that's what, that, that, that was where last week we ended, if I remember rightly, and that's where this evening we will commence. This revelation of God, which we call the Bible, in a way which is itself impressive, has been given by the Holy Spirit in and through different men, or, yes, different men, I think we could say, at different times in the style and method and vocabulary of their own day. It is, however, this mysterious connection between the divine and human aspects of the scriptures which is both baffling and instructive. Now that's the matter we're going to deal with for a little this evening. It is in one way fascinating, it is most instructive, but I must say at the beginning that there will, by the time we've finished this evening, you ought to be instructed in certain things and highly baffled in others. Because when you come to really seek to analyse this whole matter of the human and divine aspect of God's Word and where they fuse and how they mingle together, how they're connected, well, you're touching something which is a first-class mystery. And it is impossible, really, to get to the root of it except to draw certain deductions which we will seek to do this evening. Now if you will turn straight away to God's Word, 
If you will turn to 2 Peter, the, one of the verses that we read together, chapter 1, verse 21. What does the Bible really mean by inspiration, right? We've understood that it means that God was inside those men, within them, and he was breathing out his heart and his mind. He was producing, uh, as it were, creating his word in them and through them. But the whole point is how much of it was influenced by man. What part of this, of the transmission of God's word, was man's? Can we draw any line? Well, now, one, 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 21, sums up the whole thing. No prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, or the authorised version, the will of man. No prophecy ever came by the impulse of men, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Here you've got the mystery. On the one side, nothing ever came by the impulse of man. It would seem, if you, had, if you just took that, that man was out of it. But on the other hand, it's but men. There's an emphasis in the word on the word men. It is rightly emphasised. But men spoke. Not that the Holy Spirit spake through men, but men spake, you see, um, by the Holy Spirit. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. Spoke from God. Now this whole verse is most interesting and most instructive. Because this little word move, is the same word that you will find in Acts chapter 27 and verse 15 and verse 17. It can be translated, born along. And in fact it is used here in Acts chapter 27, verse 15, in another connection, but it is interesting to see it. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven were driven, same word, were borne along. Verse 17, when they had hoisted it up, they used helps undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should be cast upon the surtis, they lowered the gear, and so were driven. And again, it is interesting that this same word is used of the Holy Spirit in another connection. Acts chapter 2, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound as, the, as of the rushing of a mighty wind. The word rushing is the exact same word. Uh, the idea is of something born along. Now this scripture speaks of men. No prophecy ever came by impulse of man or will of man, but men born along by the Holy Spirit, spake from God. Now again, it is interested, interesting that in the New English Bible, um, it has been put like this. Again, the same verse, verse... Um, sorry, I've got... 
2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20. For it was not through any human whim that men prophesied of old. Men they were, but impelled by the Holy Spirit, they spoke the words of God. The, the thought there is caught, impelled. So immediately you get on the one hand, it was not the impulse of man. On the other hand, you get human agency in its own right. And yet you get the direction and control of the Holy Spirit. And the end, words spoken from God. Not words spoken of God, not words spoken about God, but words spoken from God. The idea being that God was there and he was speaking. And these men became, as it were, the mouthpiece of God. Now, you see, when you understand just a little bit of this, it brings you to this problem of what I call divine compulsion. This divine compulsion in the actual producing of God's word, it used neither physical nor psych it was, it was neither physical nor psychological. It certainly did not involve the setting aside of the personality or the character or the will of the human vessel. Indeed, it would seem that this divine direction and compulsion used the originality of the human vessel to the full in the most remarkable way, as I trust we shall see a little later on this evening. Breathing through their particular personality and character quite naturally, so that the whole impression was rightly as it was. One of complete naturalness, spontaneity, and freedom. There was, whilst there was uh, the impelling force and direction and control of the Holy Spirit, yet there was a complete willing cooperation, perhaps at times unconscious, between the human side and the divine side. Now, this is the mystery, and how far to get beyond that. I don't know. We shall look at some of the, 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 the symptoms, if you like, of this whole matter of this subject. But whether we shall get any further, I'm not sure. You see, one of the things that is the most remarkable factor and the most baffling factor in Scripture is its obvious spontaneity and freedom in its writing. It does seem as if the human authors, the human writers, ha were completely spontaneous and completely free. Take, for instance, the Apostle Paul. Take some of the asides he makes. Now, we have to ask ourselves, if this is by inspiration of God, here is a spontaneity and a freedom, which is quite remarkable, and something altogether removed from our idea of what inspiration in entails. We would not, for instance, expect Paul to uh, say some of the things he does say about himself and some of the statements he makes now and again, uh, not in the main way, but in a, a sort of other sides. You see, on the one hand, you have the Holy Spirit within these men, impelled 
telling them so that they speak from God. On the other hand, their originality, their spontaneity, their freedom of expression does not seem to be in any way limited or restricted. I think we must underline that. The outcome of all this was God-inspired scripture. Now note again Mark chapter 12 verse 36. Mark chapter 12 verse 36. Now this is the Lord Jesus talking. He said, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit. Now, again, here you've got the two sides. The emphasis is on David's words. David said. And yet we're told that David spoke in the Holy Spirit. That is, David was enveloped by the Holy Spirit. David was, as it were, encircled by the Holy Spirit. Not only was the Holy Spirit within David, but David was within the Holy Spirit when he spoke. The Lord Jesus was emphasizing the human aspect. It was David who spoke, but it was the Holy Spirit who is evidently the source. Here again, you've got the mystery of the human and divine aspect of God's word. Now, keep this in mind. The Lord Jesus was quoting Psalm 110. And here he says, David spake in the Holy Spirit. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But of which of the angels hath he, that is God, said at any time, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet? Here there is no mention of David saying anything. It is purely and simply God hath said. Jesus and David said in the Holy Spirit. The writer of the Hebrew speaking says, God hath said. Then again, turn on. Let's look at a few more. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Now this is of another psalm of David. Brethren, says Peter, it was needful that the scripture should be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spake before by the mouth of David. Now, it's the other way around. The Holy Spirit speaking by the mouth of David <coughs> concerning Judas. All right. Turn over the page, Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Now, listen. For David says concerning him, nothing to do. Now, it's only the human authorship. We're not, e not even mentioned that God or the Holy Spirit have anything to do with it. Verse 34. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself. Again, is David. Then you see, you have to take into consideration a large number of phrases such as these. These are all scriptural phrases I'm going to quote. Moses saith. Moses wrote. Isaiah saith. Isaiah crieth, Isaiah did prophesy, the scripture saith, it 
Seth. All these are phrases describing parts of God's word. Now, it does not mean that there are various degrees and differing measures of inspiration, as some have tried to point out. They feel that where it says, um, uh, David spake in the Holy Spirit, there's a high degree of inspiration, a high inspirational content. And where it says that God said, that's the highest inspirational content. But when you come down to something else, well, it may just be the human vessel, uh, inspired, but just the human vessel. I don't think this at all, because if you study carefully all these scriptures, and especially where the same quotation is qu quoted more than once, you will come to this conclusion that all these phrases are equated with the simple one, God saith. In other words, you're up against, again, this simple mystery of the divine and the human aspect of God's word. So simple that the uh, scriptures themselves speak of it in quite a simple way. They speak, Moses says here, another place it will say, the Lord spoke through the prophet, saying... Or again, it will say, it says, so-and-so. Or another time, it will just use the phrase, the scripture says. Other places, it speaks as God says. Again, it's instructive to note that when God wishes to give us a full-orbed view of his son, he takes four different men who say the same thing in four different ways. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if inspiration were a mechanical thing, just a question of a mechanical dictation, if God could so use a human vessel as to make it just like a human typewriter, then we would not need four different men. We would need only one. And by having one writer, we would iron out a whole number of difficulties that we find in the four Gospels. Here you are again in the presence of a mystery. Because you see, God, for a full-orbed view of Christ, takes Matthew, who is obviously by nature more of a traditionalist. And when you read the Gospel of Matthew carefully, you will find that his whole, his whole feeling, his whole personality is steeped in the past. And the thing that thrills him about Christ is that Christ is the messianic king who has utterly fulfilled all the desires of Israel and all the prophecies concerning the messianic kingdom which was to come. But you take Mark, and Mark was probably written very much under the influence of Peter. And we have in Mark a, a, a different personality altogether. Someone who is much more simple. And someone who somehow or other ties everything down to the servant. We all know this, that Mark, the theme of Mark is Christ as the servant. And he, he sees Christ as the servant of the Lord. Serving 
everyone. The one who came, not only to serve God, but to serve the world, to serve his own. And uh, there was no better person, probably, than either Mark or Peter, to uh, more fitted to speak of Christ in this way. And then you've got Dr. Luke, the, four, the third gospel. And Luke's whole approach is different. He is most interested, for instance, in diseases. And in the Gospel of Luke, you have a more detailed analysis of the people who are ill than in any other Gospel, as you would expect. And Luke is a physician, and he is interested in men and women as men and women. And so his whole Gospel sees Christ as a man. The thing that thrills um, the writer of Luke's Gospel is the fact that Christ was the Son of Man. And it's a revelation of Christ as human, touched with the feeling of, uh, of the people. And when you come to John, you're just soar, you soar away into the heavenly. John's whole revelation of Christ is not as king merely, not as servant, not as man. His revelation of Jesus is as the word, the living word was neither beginning nor end. God the Son. And you know, John was no traditionalist. Right the way through his gospel, he is comparing the old dispensation with what Christ has brought in. And he chooses eight different miracles to prove the fact that Christ has finished and closed the old dispensation and opened a new age. You see, it is so interesting. Matthew doesn't tell us that. It's not that Matthew clashes with John. It's rather that the Holy Spirit in Matthew has, has given us another aspect of Christ. Now you have four Gospels, divinely inspired, God-breathed out. And yet there are four different men that have been chosen to be the vessel of this many-sided, full-orbed view of the fullness of Christ. And then it is virtually the same with the letters. You've got the same thing. God takes a Paul when he wants to speak about justification through faith. Paul, I do believe, was absolutely qualified in God's preparation of him, right from his birth, to be able in the end to speak of justification through faith. No man ever lived more purely by the law. No man ever saw more, more into the meaning of the law. He was, he was trained in the law. But when that day came, when, when God met him on the Damascus Road, and God revealed his son in him, something happened in Paul which broke the old law. And he became the apostle of faith. Now, if God wants to speak to us about justification through faith, the end of an old order, the death of the Lord, then he takes a man like Paul. And there is no man more free than Paul. You can see it. In his, his, his words run away with him. I have something more to say about that a bit later. He's the kind of man who is by nature free. And then again, when God wants to speak to us about works, he takes a man like James. And there's no funny business with James. James is almost acid. He is intensely practical. 
He has no time at all for this talk of justification through faith unless it is proved by works. And he preaches the same doctrine and given many a headache over it. He preaches the same doctrine from a completely different angle. And he calls it works. But when you investigate and study it closely, you find it's the same doctrine with a different garb. That's all. But you see, God takes a James, a man who by nature is more legal in some aspects, and through him he reveals this whole matter of good works and their necessity. And then again, if God wants to speak to us about eternal security, who does he take? He takes John. And John is the apostle who speaks of eternal security. He is the only one who's recorded for us those words. No man, no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. I know my sheep. In the last day, I'll raise them up. And word after word after word after word comes out of John along this line, all through his gospel, about the eternal security of the redeemed. They'll never be lost. And John tells us, if they went out from us, this is John, not the others, if they went out from us, they were not on us. That's the explanation. He doesn't believe that there's anything about losing your salvation, nothing like that with John. He says, if they go right out and never come back, it is a sign that they were never really born of God. Because his attitude in his letters against, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. He's absolutely definite about it. There's no question of it. If there's just a little something born of God in you, it'll overcome in the end. It'll be there in the glory. That's John's attitude. But when the Lord wants to warn us about the awful possibility of losing our inheritance and receiving eternal harm and injury, he takes another person. Who it is, we don't even know. But it's the writer to the Hebrews. And through him... He starts to warn us from beginning to end that if we, do, if we neglect so great a salvation, what will happen to us? If we draw back to perdition, if, 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 if. His great word is if. And he is underlining all the time the possibility of losing an inheritance. All these letters, all these parts of the New Testament are God-breathed out. And yet, here you've got the divine side, but the human side is a Paul and a James, and uh, a writer of the Hebrews, and John. Well, um, then again, I'd like you to note the difference that there is in style in the Bible. Um, evidently, inspiration does not mean sameness of style. Um, again, this is a, an idea that many of us would have, that if God really was in them, then surely there would be a kind of sameness of style. It would be a divine style. But in fact, there is no such thing. We have a tremendous variety of style. Well, take your Bible. You won't be able to do all this while I'm talking to you, but if you want to note it down, it's a, it'll, be a, it'll be a Bible study a series of Bible studies for you uh, for a long time to come. You compare the difference in style between Genesis, Daniel, and Song of Solomon. Now, you know, if we were to take any portion of Genesis and take any portion of Daniel and take any portion of the Song of Songs and put them all together, I think the most simple believer 
would know that they came from different parts of God's word. There was a difference of style within them. You put the three together, you've got a difference of style. All right. Someone says, well, of course you would have a difference of style between Genesis and Solomon. A lot of centuries were between the two. All right, then. <coughs> Let's take, then, Isaiah and Ezekiel. They're nearer to each other. Look at the difference in style between these two men. Look at Ezekiel's style. It's a literary style to start with. And it's not only... He hasn't got a gift of oratory. I'm quite sure that if, if Ezekiel had um, preached some of his great messages on the cherubim here, two-thirds of the folk would be fast asleep. His whole approach is literary. It's to be studied. It's to be sat down and read and studied. He's got a style which is quiet and it's complex. You take Isaiah. He's the greatest preacher, <coughs> as far as we can tell, in the Old Testament. And his style is one of oratorical beauty. You see, he soars away into the heavens. No one like Isaiah. That's why we all love Isaiah. Because just to read, the, especially the latter part of the book, uh, is a joy. It's not just simply what he says, it's the way he says it. Uh, there's a style there. But, you know, you surely wouldn't mix up, or would you? Anything from Ezekiel and anything from Isaiah, would you? It would be most interesting one evening to bring a whole uh, section of different things, just hand them out, written out in the same hand, and just ask you where you thought they came from. It would be interesting. I wonder if any of you would really mix up Ezekiel with Isaiah. Well, for those of you who read your, work, your Bible just a little bit more, I doubt whether anyone would mix those two men. But they're only two examples. There are many others that we could take. All right, come over into the New Testament. John has his own definite style. And I've often said here in this company that um, I'm sure that if you brought any bit of John to me and any bit of Paul, I could tell the difference straight away. John has a definite style. It's inherent within everything that he has written. There's a possibility that the only thing that would trip you up is the book of Revelation. But that has a reason for that. But everything else that he's written, his letters and his gospel, they have a style which is inherent within them. And the Pauline style is altogether different. You can't mix up John and Paul. John has a simplicity of style, of language, against Paul's superabundance of adjectives and much else. You can't mix these two styles up. Or, all right, you take James. Is anyone going to uh, be, be muddled as to what is James and what is John and what is Paul? Those three styles stand out clearly in the New Testament. John, Paul, James. Well, so we could go on. Then again, take the question of the difference of method in the Bible. Inspiration doesn't mean that the, the same method has been adopted uh, either... Uh, especially in its, in, in the, on the written side of it. Uh, for instance, take the acrostic psalms. Well, if you'd like to turn to two of them. Psalm 37 is an acrostic psalm, and Psalm 119. Now, what is an acrostic psalm? It's simply that each letter of the, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, of which there were 22 letters, uh, each letter is taken to commence 
each sentence. In Psalm 37, every two verses um, are, uh, begin with the same letter. In Psalm 119, of course, you've got it even in your English version. You not only have in Psalm 119 um, the whole psalm divided up into the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but every single verse in each section begins with the letter of the first uh, of, it, of its section. Aleph, every single uh, verse in uh, that section begins with Aleph, and so on, Beth with Beth, and so on and so forth. You see, the thing is this, you know, if you were to say to someone that God could inspire such things, some people would hardly believe it. They would feel that something so involved, such an involved method, could hardly be uh, an embodiment of divine inspiration. And yet the acrostic psalms are a whole lot of them. And you'll find acrostics elsewhere, you know, in the little book of Esther. The name of the Lord, the name of God is not mentioned once. And yet it's there four times at the turning point of, of, of the story. Each time it comes to a crisis, there in acrostics is the Lord's name, Jehovah, Yahweh. It's there in the book of Esther. You see... Divine inspiration has used different methods, and some of them are most remarkable. Now, you take this acrostic psalm, uh, Psalm 119, with its involved literary method, and now put it over against Psalm 18. You know, I, I'm trying to use psalms that you all know. Psalm 18, you know, that great psalm, David's great cry of triumph, when at last he comes to the throne and looks back over his whole life. It's a tremendous cry of triumph. It's absolutely spontaneous. And here you've got two kinds of method. One which is absolutely spontaneous, and it is God-breathed out, and the other is a most involved literary method, and it's still God-breathed out. All right, then, take something else. Take what we call the Mosaic Psalms. Now, I don't mean by Mosaic Psalms, Psalms that Moses wrote, but I mean Psalms which are Mosaic in their structure. They're all little pieces pinched from other Psalms. Did you know that? There are at least two Psalms that are literally pinched from all the other Psalms. 144, Psalm 144, there is not a phrase in Psalm 144 that is not pinched from the rest of the Psalter. Now, would you think that that could embody divine inspiration? And yet, if you read Psalm 144, in spite of this involved literary method, it is an amazing psalm. Well, perhaps that's a comfort for someone who doesn't know how to praise the Lord on a Sunday morning and has to pinch a few phrases from various quarters to, by which to do it. You will know this, that even in God's Word there is such a method. I could tell you also that it's not only a mosaic psalms, in certain psalms they've pinched a whole half of another psalm. And there is a repetition almost verbatim. You get that in Obadiah as well in which nearly the whole book of Obadiah is copied, or vice versa, from another portion in one of the other prophets. Well, there you are. And yet here we have divine inspiration. This is God-breathed out. Again, let's look at some other different methods. Take the book of Job. 
Job is a, dra a drama. It is an actual drama. It is written in the form of an ancient drama. And here God uses the theatre almost to, to, to put over a tremendous lesson. Now, I'm quite sure many Christians won't like me if I say that God has used anything theatrical. And yet, here in God's Word, God has actually used dramatic form in the book of Job. And here you have an epilogue, and you have, uh, uh, you have a prologue and an epilogue, and you have all the different movements right the way through, from beginning to end, with all the different characters coming on and what they have to say, and so on. And the whole point, is a tremendous instruction in this matter of the, of the mystery of suffering. Well, that's Job. And yet it's God breathed out. All right? Uh, take uh, um, alongside Job, take the Proverbs. Now, they couldn't find anything more different than the book of Job, than the book of Proverbs. Here you have lots of well, hundreds and hundreds of short, pithy sayings, which if you ever feel depressed, go away and read. I guarantee you that within a few moments you will have been lifted up. For there, in those pithy sayings, you will see all kinds of situations and people embodied. Uh, there's nothing like the book of Proverbs to speak to contemporary situations. But here is a, um, a book which is belongs to the same class of literature as the book of Job. Job belongs to wisdom literature, and so does the book of Proverbs, but they're entirely different in method. One is dramatic in its form, and the other are lots of short, pithy things, which get right to the point. And the idea was that the wise men, as they were called the wise, could teach people by these short, pithy things, these sort of... Little short terse sentence, they could get to the heart of a problem and people could repeat them and repeat them and repeat them till they'd learned them. They got right in, and by that way they were taught in divine wisdom. Proverbs. And yet, you know, the book of Proverbs is not something to be avoided, but is something to be studied and read, not once, but again and again and again. Or I take the book of Zechariah. Here you have an entirely different method. We call it apocalyptic. It is something that looks forward to the future and sees the future in symbols. And again, these three different parts of God's word are entirely different in, different in method. And yet all is God-breathed out scripture, divinely inspired. Well, let's take a few more things. I don't want to bore you with all these different methods, but you take the Song of Songs. Is it an allegory? I am convinced myself it's an allegory. I know there are some people who believe it's a little love ditty um, written by uh, King Solomon about either an Egyptian princess or another shepherd girl that he fell for, but I myself believe that it was an allegory. As the rabbis said, Solomon wrote it when he fell before the Lord and when, uh, when, uh, when he, he wrote it by inspiration. I believe it's an allegory, the greatest and most wonderful allegory in the Bible concerning Christ and the church. Yes, maybe it came out of Solomon's experience, that may well be, but it is allegorical in its method. There you've got another method, divinely inspired. 
and then you take the book of Exodus. Put the Song of Songs and the, and the book of Exodus side by side. You've got two different methods. The book of Exodus is just narrative. The Song of Songs is allegorical. And yet both are God-breathed out scripture. Come to the New Testament and you have difference of method in the New Testament. James is a wonderful example of a certain method which actually was not so much New Testament. It belonged to the period when the Old Testament was, as it were, ending and the New Testament age was beginning. It belongs more even to the Lord's kind of ministry, of the Sermon of the Mount. James has all those little um, sort of paragraphs, just little, uh, um, again, little statements, absolutely to the point, direct, they get right under your skin, they're most uncomfortable to read, just because they are so uh, straight and dogmatic and clear. But there's no real connection. If you read through from beginning to end of James' letter, it's hard to really find a real theme. It's true that the point is practical application of things. But in actual fact, he ranges over a vast area of things, and if you read right the way through, you'll find all kinds of things in that little book. It's a different method altogether, for instance, to the letter to the Romans. Now, the letter to the Romans is not really a letter. It's a treatise. And it was written not just as some kind of personal letter from Paul to saints in Rome who were in a bit, a bit of trouble over the question of faith, but Paul sat down and felt that the time had come to put down into writing this whole matter of faith. What really it meant, how it was related to everything. And so he begins. And we have this wonderful, what we call the Roman letter. But it's entirely different to the letter of James. And of course, if you come to Philemon, you have uh, another letter altogether. Here's a, a little short letter. Uh, I was going to say very much like the kind of letter any of us might write. It, uh, I don't think we would probably write to about a slave who'd run away. But I mean, if someone had arrived at home today who'd been in the far country and had got saved, it's the kind of thing you and I would do. We'd write off to the, to the, bo to the boy's parents or to those who were very interested in him and would say, look, um, in the most marvellous way, I've come into contact with so-and-so uh, and he's come to the Lord. And he's a bit afraid about coming home, but uh, um, I'm writing this to you uh, to let you know it's quite all right. We're, we're quite clear that he's born of God, and he's a changed person. And we know that you'll absolutely be full of joy uh, uh, about, his, about what has happened to him and how he's come. That's scripture. A little tiny letter. It's only a small letter. It's small. But you see, here's another method. Some people have scratched their heads and wondered why the letter uh, to Philemon uh, is in there at all. But there you are. It's a different method. So you've got the Roman letter, you've got the Jacobean letter, and you've got the uh, Philemon letter. And all three of them are different entirely in method. In the way that they're written, and even the very objective of them. Then again, you take two other, uh, another example in the New Testament. Take the book of Acts and take Revelation. Now you've got a difference of method. Acts is historical narrative. It's a record. <coughs> it's not a general history. It is an actual record of the movement of the Holy Spirit. 
in the early days of the church, just before Pentecost, and particularly Pentecost, and onwards. And yet, you see, um, when you come to the book of Revelation, you have an altogether different method. Here, a man sees a vision. Luke didn't see any vision. How did Luke write the story? Well, dear old Dr. Luke, I no doubt at all he interviewed a lot of people. He probably, like some people we know who've written such accounts and so on, has probably scribbled down bits and pieces, just like a doctor would. Um, and he heard so, so he would, would pause here, and he heard so, oh, scribbled all down, and put it away, see. And then later on he heard something else, and he went, oh, went down, and went in. He said, I'm keeping it all, it may come in handy one day when, when we write up uh, this record. And in the end, there came a time when Luke sat down, but the Holy Spirit was within him. And the result was God breathed out scripture. But John, the Lord used a different method altogether. John was in a, in a mine in Patmos. And, and whilst he was no doubt slaving his life away, not knowing that, there were, that he would be released some years afterwards, he probably thought he'd be there for the rest of his days. Suddenly one day, some scholars have thought that it was probably the result of looking at the sea, because Patmos is a small island. And it may well have been that a number of times John looked across the sea as the sun was setting to the mainland, where his home was, in, in Ephesus, and where he knew all the churches were. And he saw the sea become a sea of glass. Well, maybe, maybe not, we don't know. But all we know is, is that one day the Lord spoke to John and John saw a vision and all the sort of things around him suddenly took on a new, sh new shape. And he saw right into the future and he saw us, yes us, he saw us in this day, gen day and generation, he saw all down through church history right on to the end. And in a sense, I don't even know whether John realized it or knew it, but in the, he, was, he was the summarizing of all prophetic literature behind him. It would have taken him years and years and years of study to have so brought it all together. No, he was slaving his life away in a mind. When all that came, he hadn't got lots of books around him which he could study, lots of things he could refer to, and all those It was a divinely given revelation of the future, of the things which must come to pass. And so he dare got himself near it. He could not, he dare not put it down in black and white. He'd be more than his life. He was a, was worth, he was a political prisoner. So it's the old apocalyptic method. He uses symbol after symbol after symbol after symbol after symbol. And all that great system, that cruel system that was around him, is symbolized in, in his book of Revelation. There's a difference of method. Then, of course, there's difference of, or of vocabulary. Divine inspiration doesn't mean, of course, sameness of vocabulary. Well, I think that's obvious. I mean, if we were to take Genesis 1 and Ephesians 1, uh, many, many, almost thousands of years part those two chapters. But nevertheless, here, in one volume, you've got a tremendous difference in vocabulary, haven't you? Ephesians 1 is dealing with the same idea as the first chapters of Genesis, the beginning. What happened in the beginning? But if you take Genesis 1 and John 1 and Ephesians 1 and compare them, you'll find a difference of vocabulary. Well, that's, that's understandable, isn't it? Many, many years divide uh, between uh, Genesis 
and John and Paul. But when you come to other things, it's even more interesting. For instance, you take the vocabulary of Jeremiah and compare it with the vocabulary of Isaiah, and there is a difference. Or you take the vocabulary of Ezekiel and compare it with Isaiah. The men use diff a different vocabulary. It's understandable in a way, but you see they're talking about the same Lord. They're talking about the same name. There's a great difference of vocabulary. When you come to the New Testament, of course, again, you take John's letters and Paul's letters, you've got a difference of vocabulary. I've already mentioned uh, dear old Paul, his great abundance of words. Uh, he really did uh, um, surpass all people in his use of words. They could fall out of him one after another, so much so that it, sometimes it didn't even make good Greek. He just simply poured out of him. But John, not John. John's whole mentality was a more concise one. Uh, you've got it in his little, as Mr. Sparks said a few uh, weeks ago, in his little short sayings that in his letters, God is love, God is light, and so on and so forth. Paul doesn't ever speak. Have you ever noticed Paul doesn't use that kind of method at all? You never find Paul saying God is love. When Paul talks about God being love, he uses at least five adjectives and a lot more. You read it in Ephesians, what he says about the exceeding abundance of his... Go on, you read it up in Ephesians 3 if you think I'm exaggerating and you'll find it about the depth and the height and the length and the breadth and the exceeding greatness of his love and so on and so on. That's Paul. And you can't mix the two men up. Their vocabulary is quite different. And yet they were contemporaries. The vocabulary was different. And God needed a Paul when he wanted to speak about the eternal mystery hid from ages and generations but revealed now. And he wanted a John when he wanted to soar in simplicity into the heavens and leave us with some of the most profound things about the Lord Jesus that have ever been written. So you have difference of vocabulary. We could go on, of course. Uh, what about the Hebrew letter? What about its vocabulary? Uh, did Paul write it? Well, there are many people who do not believe that Paul wrote the uh, letter to the Hebrews. And they say the vocabulary is quite different to, for instance, the vocabulary of Romans. But they are. there's a difference of vocabulary, even amongst the contemporary writers of the New Testament. Or again, look at the difference in personality. I mean, it comes out quite clearly in Scripture. It's more and more clear in certain parts than in others. But you have a complete, clear difference of personality. Now, this sounds trite. But you see, when you're talking about God breathed out scripture, the mentality of some people is that the human personality has been suspended. And that God is sort of in them, uh, having suspended their personality and their, and their will and much else, and is just as it were speaking through them. It's just God. They're just a kind of channel, as we sometimes say, channels only. There's nothing else to it. There's no originality. There's no influence of their character. There's no, um, uh, nothing of their personality intruding. It's just God. But is that so? Well, you've only got to take uh, the scripture and compare. For instance, take the, take the Old Testament. Compare Moses with David. What a difference of personality. 
Don't you think that David's personality comes out in his psalms? I do, but I don't know whether you do. Perhaps some will think it's wishful thinking on my part. I believe David's personality is stamped on his own psalms. It's there. You take Moses, Moses had a personality, and Moses' personality comes out in the way he records things and in the way he set things down. You've got it. You've got a man like Jacob, he's an entirely different man to the other two. There's a difference of personality. You've got three men, entirely different. All right, but well take these personalities. Take Jeremiah and compare him with Daniel. What a difference in personality. They were great personalities. Jeremiah was on a much more sensitive and artistic personality. I was up in the heavens or down in the depths. And you knew it. When he was up in the heavens, you knew it. And when he was down in the depths, you knew it. And Jeremiah is one of the people who's written some things that none, uh, no one else in the scriptures ever dared to say about the Lord. When he was down in the depths, some of the things he felt about the Lord and what he felt about the way of the Lord and the dealings of the Lord. And so he's up and he's down. But when you take Isaiah, you sometimes wonder whether Isaiah has ever had a bad time. Do you read right through the book of Isaiah? Do you find anything? When you read through Jeremiah and read through Isaiah and find the difference. Jeremiah says, I don't know why I've been called, the Lord's done this to me and done that to me and the other to me. But Isaiah never speaks of himself like that. You would hardly know Isaiah was there. It's a difference of personality. I'm afraid Jeremiah's a bit more of an exhibitionist in one way. Naturally and rightly, Isaiah is not an exhibitionist. He keeps himself out of the picture. When you come to Daniel, Daniel brings himself into the picture in quite a different way to Jeremiah. He, he speaks himself being sick for a long time over a certain vision he had. He says it made his head sick. And he was very bad about it for quite a while. But I mean, Daniel speaks about himself. He says how, how he records how he was brought in, how he was the key man in the end, and how he rose to great position. And yet it's quite different to Jeremiah. Three personalities, absolutely different, all of whom have left their stamp upon what they have given us. So there's God-breathed out scripture, and yet, and yet, you have human personality. Take Luke and John, two personalities that come out clearly in the writing of their Gospels. You cannot mix up Luke and John. Luke has got just the personality that is his, and you find it both in Luke and the, and the Acts. And John, you've got a personality which is entirely different, and you'll find it in his writings. And as we've already made mention, you take Paul, you take James, you take Peter. Here are three distinct personalities, and they all have left an indelible stamp upon what is called God-breathed-out scripture. Now, here you are once again in the mystery. In, in the presence of mystery. You see, somehow or other, the personality of these writers is not obliterated by divine inspiration at all. If anything, it's enhanced. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed Revelation 1.9. It's summed up in the little word where John says, I, John, I think many of us would be afraid to do because of being unspiritual. I, John. And Paul, not once, I'm afraid, but quite a number of times, says, I, Paul, quite unashamedly. Because here was human personality indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and rightly. And somehow the divine and the human aspect blend. And the result is scripture. At times it would almost seem that the very failings 
of the individual, or perhaps we should more rightly say their temperamental lack, as you wish, are used by God. Um, I've said Paul has a propensity for abundance of language. I think, if anything, we would say that Paul, if we knew him in some ways, was a little verbose in his writing. He stuttered, evidently, or had some speech trouble when he spoke. But in, uh, in his writing, he, he was really tremendous. And, uh, well, he was very free. Paul was the kind of man who evidently wa wasn't afraid of, of just um, talking out of his heart. And, you know, I'm quite sure that many a person here, and in many other companies, would, if Paul had been here, would have been most worried about him on some of the things. He would have said, well, really, he ought not to open his heart like that and say that kind of thing. See, and really, he shouldn't. Well, when you read his letter, and you see some of the things he said, have you ever read the second letter to, to the church at Corinth? See some of the things he says, the personal things he says. And you think, well, 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 well the man's bringing himself rather into all this. Do you see what I'm getting at? It's, it's very interesting. Because it's as if the Lord uses perhaps a point where there could be a little bit of trouble. Uh, it was a, a temperamental lack. It was the weakness of his constitution. Generally, the good point of our temperament gives rise to its worst point. And you'll see it here. Again with James. He, I expect, tended to legalism. And uh, yet the Lord uses him. The, the, it seems that the Lord uses a bad thing about him. The same way that Jeremiah tends sometimes to sink into death, the Lord uses it. So we could go on. All these men had one thing in common. They were chosen, apprehended, prepared, and anointed by the same Lord as vessels through which he would produce the Scripture. Were they always conscious and aware of being inspired? I wonder. If you read uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 to 11, you will see that it's, it would seem from that that they were aware of it. It's a passage we read together this evening. It says, they, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. They inquired what personal time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Now it would seem from that that they were conscious of this inspiration. But just wait, were they? <laughs> you look at John 8 verse 56. Jesus said about Abraham that he rejoiced to see his day. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That suggests that Abraham knew a good deal more about this dispensation than some of us would credit him with. Then again, if you look at Galatians 3.8, uh, you get another little uh, sidelight on... the Old Testament sense. 3, verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. It suggests that he actually understood what the Lord meant when he said, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. The Holy Spirit revealed it to him, uh, what, it, what its meaning was. 
Well, is that so? It would seem so from this. You take Hebrews 11, and when you read through Hebrews 11, and especially verse 13 to verse 16, you would um, feel that these men saw a good deal more than we think they did. They understand, they understood a good deal more. It says they inquired and they explored, and they asked the spirit within them what he meant by this prophecy. All right. But um, there are other things which uh, you just question. I read to you here in Acts chapter 2 uh, and verse um, 13. It says, this is speaking of David. It is clear, therefore, that he spoke as a prophet who knew that God had sworn to him that one of his di own direct descendants should sit on his throne. And when he said he was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh never suffered corruption, he spoke with foreknowledge of the resurrection of the Messiah. Now that seems quite clear that David understood what he was talking about. Yet, on the other side, what about Job? Was Job conscious, really, in his experience? That scripture was in the making? That something was happening? I don't know. What about Jonah? I do not believe for a moment that at the time Jonah knew that something was being worked out in his life that was going to be recorded and put into God's word. These men didn't realize that. It was probably when they'd gone that much of it actually began to take shape in its literary form. Or again, you take, Paul, you take Psalm 22. Did David really understand when he first had that experience recorded in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did he really understand it was the Messiah that it was talking of? Well, these are questions. Psalm 51. Did David, when he fell with Bathsheba, and when finally that great psalm after a year had passed away, when he wouldn't confess his sin, and when finally he, he was convicted of it and he put it right, and that Psalm 51 was written. Do you think that David ever realized that that psalm would become one of the greatest helps to Christians of all the psalms in the Psalter? Do you think he knew? And then take dear Paul. Well, you read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Do you think that Paul knew when he was writing some of these letters that in fact they were going to become part of what we call the New Testament? Well, listen, this is one of the most amusing parts I find in the whole New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For though I made you sorry with my epistle, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So I'm very interesting that here you have a man who regretted writing divinely inspired scripture. His first letter, he had a very bad time about, and in fact, it was the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Was he aware at the time that the Holy Spirit in him was breathing out something which, when you think of it, think of the first letter of Corinth, think of chapter 12. Well, forget the murky part of it in the earlier chapters, though they're wonderful, aren't they? The first chapter of the first letter is wonderful. But think of the twelfth chapter. Think of the thirteenth chapter. Think of the fifteenth chapter of the first letter. And Paul had such a bad time after he'd sent that letter off, wished he'd never written I have no doubt he thought, well, that's me again, and my words will run away with me, and I've gone too far, and now what's going to happen? It'll probably be the end of everything. They'll just break their back. It's too much. I've been too severe with them. 
And yet, you see, when finally the news got to him, he, he realised and all was well. Well, I, I, I just put this over to you as a question. Did, were they always aware that uh, they were divinely inspired? Do you think when Paul wrote the letter to, the, to Philemon, he really knew that that was going to find its way into God's word? Or when he wrote the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, and <clears throat> unfortunately they all took it very much to heart, which is a good thing normally, but in this case they took it far too much to heart. A lot of them flung up their jobs, sold their homes and everything else and waited for the Lord to appear. And poor Paul, when he heard about it, was absolutely horrified and dashed off a letter to them to tell them, whatever you do, you're going too far. Of course you mustn't understand by my letter that the Lord's just coming back right now. It's quite a time off. And uh, do you think at that time he realised that those two letters were going to find their way into what we call the Bible? I think, you know, if some of them had, I mean, I'm sure he would have thought of the Roman letter in a different light. And some other things. But some is, I think some of the spontaneity would have been restricted. Some of the humanity uh, of God's word would have been just drawn back. And we would have had a, a kind of false and artificial spiritual overlay. Which what wouldn't be God. For the amazing thing is this. Until you and I are ourselves, God cannot be himself. And this is, n there is no place in which this is, not, is more true than in the Bible. These men were supremely what they were in God. And so they weren't afraid. In one way, you've got their weaknesses, you've got their foibles, you've got their failings, you've got their strong qualities, you've got it all. Well, now then, how can we just summarize this matter? Well, we can say this. In all that we have said, the supreme thing about the Bible is its divine authorship. We are not handling something which merely contains God's word, nor something which merely breathes God. We are handling the word of the Lord given us by divine inspiration. We may not fully understand the connection of divine inspiration with the human vessel, but it is true that if once you start to investigate <coughs> Scripture, you've either got to throw the whole thing overboard or you have got to come to this unqualified position that God is the author of Scripture. An argument with Scripture invariably ends in involving us with an argument with God. The Bible is the result of God breathing out his heart and mind by the Holy Spirit in certain men at different times. It's a God-given revelation of himself, of his purpose and of his salvation. And it is just in that that its unique and living authority and power lies. You can't just admire God's Word. And you can't just play with God's Word. And you can't just simply discuss God's Word. You've got to receive it through faith in obedience and humility and reverence. 
otherwise it's a closed book. In fact, it's more than a closed book, it becomes confusing. It's a strange book, the Bible, because either it opens its treasures by the Holy Spirit to you more and more and more, or you become more and more and more confused and baffled. It either creates faith or it destroys faith, but there's no in-between. And everything is dependent upon the attitude and the mentality of our approach. So it's important for us to understand that here we handle the word of the Lord. Human systems will rise and fall. Great men will come and go. It's all as we read earlier this evening... All flesh and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. It withers and it falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It's, it's unchangeable. It's unshakable. It's a sure and certain foundation upon which we can put our feet in Christ and know that we are saved. Well, may the Lord just help every one of us to understand from what we've said a little more of the nature of this book.